Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in campaigning and community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunn Street develops community engagement and organising strategies to win campaigns both big and small. Uh, we train engagement staff, volunteers and organisers in leadership and power building and we help leaders craft their own public narrative that tells a story that unites people and moves them to act together. If you want to create change in your community, then hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Have you been in a road accident? Whether you're the driver, rider, passenger or pedestrian, you may be able to claim compensation through your superannuation. Uh, whatever you're facing, Morris Blackburn Lawyers have the experience that you can count on and they'll support you through this whole complex process and get you through to the other side. To find out more, simply visit Morris Blackburn at morrisblackburn.com.au. Today's episode is brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left and organising podcast out each Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And this is our second of four weekly recaps of the New South Wales state election. It is uh, 14 odd days until uh, election day. Polls open this coming Saturday. So effectively the election begins this Saturday and uh, we are coming down to the wire. And to help me unpack the last week of this campaign is the uh, chief executive from the McCallum Institute, Michael Buckland, and the political director for the Community and Public Sector Union, the CPSU, uh, Rosie Ryan. And uh Looking forward to having a chat with those guys about the uh, the last week of this campaign in New South Wales. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify when you're done listening to today's episode, or leave us a review on Apple Podcast and Podchaser. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Wednesday afternoon on the lands of the Wurundjeri people, and we're in our second week of our four weeks focusing on the New South Wales state election with our weekly recaps. And to help me recap uh, week two of the campaign, I'm joined once again once again by the CEO of the McKell Institute, Michael Buckland. Welcome back to Socially Democratic. Thank you for having me again. And for the first time, but better late than never, is the political director for the CPSU, the Community Public Sector Union, Rosie Ryan. Welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you. Great to be here. You're like a last-minute signing for a football team that's just going to just bring us over the top. <laughs> You're a high-profile acquisition. <laughs> Okay, uh, let's jump into it, folks. Um, starting with, uh, we had the Liberal Party announce their, uh, well, had their campaign launch on the weekend, which um, which was um, met with lots of fanfare in the media and whatnot. 
Um, Michael Buckland, to you first, I want to get a sense of um, how you saw the launch uh, and what were the centrepieces of, of policy offering that they were offering to the men of New South Wales? <laughs> to the men of New South Wales, huh? But, uh, I mean, the central, the, the image of the, the launch was children. It was, you know, I think they filled the stage with children. Um, Perite uh, brought his family up on stage. There were a lot of children in that. Um, and so really the focus was on children. And there was a reason for that, and that's because he announced uh, what he, they're calling the, the Children's Future Fund, um, whereby uh, they're going to give everyone under the age of 10 $400 into an account, uh, and then every year uh, if, they will, uh, if parents put in $400, the New South Wales government will match it with another $400, um, until they're 18, um, and that's going to give 18-year-olds uh, a big bucket of money so that they can spend on education or housing. Um, there is a there is a um, sort of they're kind of alive to a couple of what instantly pops into most people's minds is how um, skewed that's going to be to wealthier uh, families who can afford to put money away. Um, they've they've kind of at least acknowledged it where they've put a, a rule in that they're going to automatically put in $200 in every account for someone who's uh, receiving, a, a, I think it's Centrelink or, or Family Tax Benefit A or, or, or one of those. Um, uh, but to be honest, I, I hate this idea. I, I give, I've given Perite a lot of credit on, on previous things on the you know, transition from stamp duty to land tax and others. Um, but this is hopeless. No one two weeks ago was saying, oh, you know what the biggest policy issue in New South Wales is, is people when they turn 18 don't have enough money. I, I mean, I don't know. At that, that point, that was probably the only time in my life where I felt like I had enough money because you had a job and you had very few expenses. Mm. But I, I get it. There's a lot of, but no one's going to be helped now for this policy. It doesn't help anyone tomorrow. Um, and it funnels money to wealthier families in 18 years from now. Um, meanwhile, at the same time, New South Wales has, uh, you know, tripled its debt in the last five years. Um, not all of which is COVID related, a lot of its infrastructure. Uh, New South Wales public schools are underfunded to the tune of 1500 to $1,600 per student per year. Imagine what this could do to close that gap. Um, so I don't see how anyone can say that this is a priority, and and it's uh, unfortunately it has got a it's got a bit of a mixed reaction. Some people in the in the media see it as a thing as a positive, but really, of course, people see it as a positive if you go tell them you're going to give them a whole lot of money in any way. But I don't know. Sorry, I'm getting on my rant here, but I just think this is one of the worst policies I've seen come out during in the heart of an election campaign. Um, you know, not from a policy perspective. Rosie, your take on uh, this announcement that came out of the campaign? Yeah, I think um, it really reeks of really kind of individualist, like if your kid has enough money in the bank, they'll go far rather than actually looking at what the education system looks like or what supports are there for them. Um, and if you can like just chuck $400 in now and again to this account, um, then you're doing all right and you're doing better than most. Um, so I was also really quite uncomfortable with that announcement and thought it was very odd. It feels like a classic Liberal Party uh, announcement though, isn't it? It's just throwing cash at 
at, at something. It's not targeted. It doesn't feel very strategic from a policy standpoint. Uh, you know, you look at a lot of uh, um, policy offerings from state labor governments around the country. A lot of the times you can see that they'll, they'll do something like this, but you can see that they're just trying to address the inequities in society. You know, it might have been targeted at uh, a particular type of child in a particular type of family in a particular type of area, whereas this sort of just everyone's going to get it. That's why I made that joke about, you know, at the start, um, what was the, the policy offerings for the men of New South Wales? Because I think the Liberal Party are just like, oh, no, all the blokes should get it too. You know, like not thinking it through about, well, who actually does need this? And to your point, Michael, there isn't a lot of cash in the budget. So you're going to have to be pretty strategic about where you're splashing your money, right? And I just thought it was interesting the way they went about this. Yeah, and rich families are already doing this for their kids. Yeah, exactly. They've all got trust funds. It's fine. Everything's fine in the in that part of the in the part of the city, right, Michael? A couple a couple months ago, the New South Wales government went to the Commonwealth to say that they need to continue the fifty fifty funding of public hospitals because they of the cost increased in cost. What does it say to, like, how do you approach Anthony Albanese and say, you know what, we're really desperate for money to fund public hospitals if this is what you're doing? I I think it really undermines your effort in that. And look, both sides of politics have done similar things. So I, I, as in, but to a far better degree. So I look at formerly, um, you know, years ago in New South Wales, there was the back to school bonus which was, I think it was $100 or $200, given to every child in New South Wales in about February to help pay for books and things. Yes, it wasn't means tested. Yes, you know, you'd have the same accusations of kind of bribery and so on of, of, of um, you know, just pork barrelling or, or whatever. But even that, there's kind of, there is a need, you know, there is a cost associated with getting back to school. We want to ensure all kids start school with a certain, you know, there's at least kind of something. Even with, you go, Howard's baby bonus. Yeah, it's not what I'd do, but at least there was, you know, I guess it's an expensive time. This one, it's just got none of that. And at least that is an even amount given to families across the board, whereas I feel like with this, it's actually much more money is going to go to families with more money. So it's kind of the the opposite of means testing. Rosie, Rosie, I want to get your thoughts on uh, more broadly the the launch itself. Uh, You know, these launches are centrepieces for campaigns. They get the eyeballs for the TVs that night. Interestingly, both Labor and Liberal had their launches on separate weekends, so they're going to get clear space. What did you glean from the way that the Liberal parties set up their launch? Obviously, Michael mentioned before they've got 10,000 kids on on the stage. TV cameras love kids or dogs. Um, just, but I want to get your, um, your, you know, your critical eye on what you took from this particular launch. Yeah, look, I think agreed with Michael. It was a disturbing number of children. Like it was very odd. Um, And um, Perite already has seven children himself. So we did see a woman on stage in Perite's wife. And look, I know Chris Minns' partner also will get up and give a speech. That's fine. Um, But yes, he's seven children and then dozens more um, children up behind him for um, those other announcements. Um, But to be honest, greater kind of gender and cultural diversity in the children than in the crowd, I would say. Um, when you're, you're kind of looking at the footage from it and the pictures from it, um, 
I think the Libs were making a real effort to kind of put women and culturally diverse people to the front. Um, but then you kind of see the scores of white liberal men um, in their blue shirts um, all up the back as well. So I don't think that much has changed really. Um, and interesting, I mean, I guess no surprise um, because where have they been on the campaign as well? But um, no Scott Morrison, no Tony Abbott. John Howard's around, old favourite, um, and Gladys Berejiklian um, was nowhere to be seen as well. So um, interesting to watch those ones, I think. And to add to that, uh, Michael, uh, Peter Dutton was suspiciously absent um, as well. Um, what do you, uh, I, I just assume we're just not going to see him in this campaign at all, right? I, I would imagine you don't. I, I think that you have um, per Perite and I mentioned it last week, but Perite is one of the best assets that they've got at the moment. I think they want all eyes on him. Um, Dutton doesn't bring, if anything, he's a little bit more polarising than, uh, than certainly Perite is. And, his, um, and it's also sending the wrong message. So right now Perite is doing a lot to kind of uh, communicate with the people in New South Wales that he is a centrist um, and not not kind of a too too hard-headed um and and i think that that's not where um i don't know that's not my image of dutton rosie i'm interested uh on uh, the talk about the gender stuff we had uh liberty sanger from morris blackburn uh, julia fox the national assistant secretary of the sda and natalie hutchins who's a, the minister for education the minister for women of the victorian state government discuss on our annual international women's day podcast uh the inability for the Liberals at a national level and certainly in Victoria to pre-select uh, women candidates in winnable and also target seats. And in fact, they've gone backwards in terms of their rep representation. Um, just a third of the candidates, I think, that are up for pre-selection in the lower house are women from the Liberal Party in New South Wales. Um, I want to get your reflections on that. Is this, d d does this uh the the actions of the Peritai Peritai government and the party uh is it seen purely as a sort of a beltway processy type issue or can this speak louder to their attitudes towards uh the women of New South Wales and will that have an impact do you think uh, at the ballot box I think that's right I think it does speak louder um when you look at this government, um, there are not a lot of women. Um, I think it's a really stark contrast to see Labor where I think 50% of their front bench are, are women. Um, they've got lots of good female candidates in the running. Um, it is not the kind of perfect storm of the federal election where Scott Morrison had said some pretty sexist things um, with pretty broad coverage. Uh, we'd seen everything that had happened at Parliament House and out of the Jenkins inquiry, um, and there'd been really heightened and widespread, um, I suppose, anger about um, their attitude towards women. However, um, the New South Wales Liberal government looks massively out of touch. Um, they have had a lot of internal angst, um, both in you know people who've left the party because of treatment of women, um, and also in the kind of pre-selections. You just see, you know, decent woman candidate after decent woman candidate um, looked over in favour for some young white male staffer um, to run in various seats and um, fairly well publicised internal angst and, and, and local issues with people then not campaigning for them or there being real splits on the ground in relation to it. Um, so I think their continued attitude of 
um, saying no to affirmative action um, and saying, no, people get there on merit. Um, but then when you look at the men that get there, is that really on merit? Uh, means that this will just continue to be an issue for them. It's really ideological. It's really baked in. Um, and we've seen various scandals and issues, but like one that springs to mind is um, Perrottet was eventually forced to remove um, an upper house candidate um, from his ticket because he had um, kind of sent around in a difficult pre-selection battle um, explicit images of um, a, a female MP. Um, and the, the kind of coverage of that was, well, you know, everyone makes mistakes and, um, you know, it's not that bad um, from, from Perrottet originally. Um, and then we had people um, saying, like, retiring Transport Minister David Elliott saying, well, I should take his place because I'm a man. It should be a man for a man. Um, and these kind of attitudes are just all over the place with the Liberals. And I, I think don't ring true to what community expectations are of what their parliament should look like and what attitudes their politicians should have. There's always one good thing about the Liberal Party is that they can't help themselves uh, with remarks like the one you just mentioned there. And I, I wonder if certainly, I mean, you made a really interesting point about uh, Scott Morrison um, it wasn't just that Scott Morrison said some inappropriate things once or twice. He said it consistently. And so, you know, I think the public tend to be reasonably forgiving if you kind of slip up once or twice, but if it's something that's consistently happening and then it's also coming out through um, other aspects of your government, it now seems to look like a trend. And I think that by the time we did get to election day and certainly the, I know the reflections of a lot of our volunteers on the ground here in Victoria, in what were traditionally liberal areas, you knock on the door and say, the first question was, what do you think about Scott Morrison? And if it was a woman to answer the door, they just unleashed, right? And I'm wondering about the experience in New South Wales. Um, to the points that you've just suggested, have we reached a tipping point? in which women voters are like going, mm, I'm a bit off on this Liberal government broadly, whether it be Perrottet or Berejiklian or whoever it is, do you think that we have reached a tipping point? I know there's not, not that long to go, but I just, I'm looking for hope here, I guess, is what I'm asking you. Is it, you know, are, they, are the Liberal Party going to get a bit of a kick in the pants from, um, from uh, women voters? I think it'll be interesting to see. I don't think it will be to the extent that it was at the federal level, um, but I think that sentiment is there and I think it, it will hurt them and, and continue to hurt them. Um, so I'll be interested to watch the results for that one. The the It's funny watching the, um, I, I don't know, Rosie, uh, I think you mentioned this before, but watching some of the um, the leaders being so choreographed on this space, but then seeing how that unravels at a local level. I, I, it was just earlier this week where Cessnock MP, uh, uh, the Cessnock candidate for the Liberal Party, uh, for the Nationals, was um, was dumped after, I think he said, uh, every country that's ever allowed women the right to vote has gone to hell or something like that. You know, like... Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, crazy it's, stuff. It's, it, you can't make this stuff up. There's such archaic views that are so widespread um, in their show. And I guess it speaks to, you know, a political, as we all know, political parties, they're big beasts um, and you, it's difficult at times to run a tight ship they're, and they're meant to be democratic. So therefore there's a lot of things that you can't control, right? And sometimes you are going to get candidates through your processes that may have views that would be in conflict with the wider community. But the Liberal Party just continue to see, I reckon the last 10 years, they've got so bad at this. Like it's it's rank 
uh, it's actually it's depressing when you think about it in terms of the the, the, the where our democracy is heading because I certainly the experience in Victoria was they were adding Genghis Khan country uh, the Victorian lives in the way that the candidates they pre-selected that they've been overrun by elements of sort of the radical far right and I know that that's been an issue in the New South Wales branch of the party as well I'm just wondering is this coming to the forefront in 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 candidate scrutiny in the, in the heat of a campaign Rosie yeah, I mean, I think the the example that that Michael just gave um, is one as such. Um, I think we actually do have a premier who is very extreme and very sexist in his views, um, and his kind of history, his kind of opus day background, the things that have come out about um, the the kind of teachings of where he went to school. Um, uh, all show that he does hold actually quite far-right beliefs, but he has been a master in being a chameleon um, and presenting himself in a much more politically expedient and moderate way um, that I think has meant that he has escaped the worst of that. Um, and then it's more about his totally dysfunctional party around him um, and that, he, you know, the, the respected and, and popular ministers are gone or on their way out um, and it's a real... Um, real mess um, around him and some really um, terrible views that come out. And then, yes, every party has its own, um, you know, particularly in, in some of the seats where things might not be so winnable, some um, interesting candidates that might come out with some unexpected views, um, but on a much higher proportion on, on the Liberal side. Michael, uh, let's turn to um, what we're seeing from Labor this week. Any major announcements come out of the Labor camp, where are we seeing uh, Chris dedicate his time in terms of seats that we can then draw some uh, insights into where they're prioritising? Um, Labor's really turned to a, a little bit more retail, I think, um, this week. The, the focus, um, the announcement after Perite's Big Child Future Fund was looking at um, removing administration fees from tolls. So if you don't have a toll account, um, and you you get a toll notice, um, you can be slapped up to $20, I think, in addition to your toll just on an admin fee. And so this is about getting rid of that. Um, and then really it was about heading back to kind of basics and uh, and into the, the um, local seats and selling the message they've got. Um, Perite spent, uh, sorry, Chris Minns has spent a lot of time out in Western Sydney um, over the last week. Uh, and, I mean, that sort of was predicted last week in our podcast where we were talking about that um, uh, that being the battleground. So uh, I think there's, it's sort of all very expected, I think, at this stage. Um, but it's interesting watching uh, big policy announcements seem to be coming earlier and earlier in election campaigns as, vo- as people vote more and more in pre-poll and um, the risks of making an announcement a week out. And really we are just about a week out from the election. So, Well, pre-poll starts on Saturday. Uh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's only a week of pre-poll in New South Wales. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's, I think it's a funny conundrum for campaigns to consider because you've got these competing interests. One, you want to drop your big policy announcements, I th- think, earlier to give it time to, you know, bed into the community and be able to, uh, I guess, treat, undecided or persuadable voters and for them to consume that information and then make a considered choice. But at the same time, you kind of got to feed the beast that is the media every day with these 
smaller announcements. So you so you're grabbing the TVs each night. More so so your opponents aren't getting the better pictures, really, isn't it? Like, and it's kind of this kind of well, what are we what are we giving them? Like a Mac guy kind of gave up in the final week and just really wasn't doing anything, uh, which meant that Labor just had a free run, really. Stuff, but it wasn't really. You can see, there was no emphasis going into that. I'm just getting a, wondering what your thoughts are going into this sort of final week and a bit, where Labor will dedicate their resources in terms of that kind of media strategy. Um, uh, Rosie, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, Labor have been pretty um, small target, um, and just talking about a few. Um, key issues really clearly um so i think um i think they will ram that home um in the final week in a bit and issues like privatization issues like um what's happened to our public services and the real impact of wage freezes um and the um gift that keeps on giving um the sydney water privatization issue um they're clearly um ramping up to to um uh be making sure everyone is aware of the risks around that um, and ramming that message home as much as possible. Michael, your campaign director for the final week and a half, where are you uh, focusing your key message? Going heavy on negative against your opponent now for the final week and a bit or what, what are you thinking? I think um, it depends who I'm campaign manager for. The let's, say, let's say I'm campaign manager. Uh, if I was in the Labor camp, I'd be saying, uh, Chris, Chris is all about reassuring people over the last week that he's stable. He's not, um, he's not, he, he's got some key policies in health and education, um, and transport, um, and cost of living, but that he's not going to, um, he's not taking huge risks. And I think that he'll, he'll reiterate that the, the big, I think, question mark for the last week is whether he leaves Sydney. Um, and if so, for how long? Uh, so there are a number of seats that, uh, you know, you can go to Tweed uh, in the last week, but that takes a day out of your, um, of, of, of your, your last five or seven days. And uh, the Tweed is, is a long way away. It's a single seat. Um, it's not quite the same, but it's similar in Goulburn. You can kind of hit Goulburn and, and Monero um, and you can go to the South Coast. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if there is a South Coast visit um, because I'm still watching Kayama closely. Um, but I don't think you're going to see much on, on um, new policy announcements. One thing I would say that I've noticed, um, and we, we actually, I think, pr slightly predicted this, but is it was interesting this week watching Labor go after the government on the economy a little bit more. So they started to say, well, you've you've led us to, we've had this huge increase in debt and therefore the only way you're going to pay for it is to privatise Sydney Water. Um, government said there's no way they're going to privatise Sydney Water. Turns out it was, um, came out just yesterday, as, as Rosie said, documents show that they in fact already have um, outsourced several components of water delivery in Western Sydney and, um, and that they've scoped plans for more. So, you know, I think that, it's, it's interesting watching that narrative on economy really take a switch. Rosie, I noticed you uh, sort of nodding in agreement with some of the remarks that uh, Michael made there, particularly about going regional. Uh, anything else you want to reflect on that? Oh, look, I, 
yeah, I would agree. New South Wales is a, a big place and travel takes a while, but um, Chris loves getting down the South Coast. Um, and there's been, you know, between fed, federally and a state level, um, you know, federally we've had Eda Monero, Gilmore, um, and then a state level, the Bega by-election, um, which has really injected some hope in turning places that have not necessarily been Labor in the past, traditionally, um, into Labor. And Chris has um, really been um, up and down the coast a hell of a lot um, and very excited by that. So I think, um, you know, places like Kayama, South Coast, um, we'll, we'll see if he returns to, but uh, there's some, some hope held there. We had uh, Mark Morey, the uh, Secretary of uh, New South Wales, uh, Union New South Wales on the podcast for a bonus episode on Monday. Check it out. Uh, and he said that Kayama was their smoky. Uh, they obviously put resources into Kayama. Uh, it's obviously got that weird uh, uh, situation with the incumbent and then running and all of that kind of stuff. So it will be interesting to watch uh, that on, on election night. Can we talk about, uh, I want to talk about ads. We didn't get a chance to do it last week. I want to talk about some of the TV creative coming out of both campaigns, even if we can start with Labor first. Um, Sussex Street have engaged with Bill Shannon's group, uh, Behaviour Change, which is uh, a Melbourne-based TV uh, creative uh, campaign agency. They are famous for doing a lot of the stuff uh, for the Brax Brumby years, but in particular the Brax years, uh, the ads that got Braxy in on the sort of the minority government in 99 and then all the way through. Um, um, Rosie, I flipped a number of ads to you um, uh, to have a look at. Um, is there any ones that you want to sort of just pick out and give us a bit of a sense of what's your, you know, your campaign, your political campaign? What, I want to get a, a sense of um, what do you like about the ads? What would you do differently? What is the tone about the ads? What does it say about how they're trying to brand up either Labor or, or Chris? What are your reflections on the, on the creative so far from Labor? Yeah, look, I think it's um, I think it's getting stronger with time. Um, I think that um, one of the ads, which I think was one of the earlier ones in the campaign, um, I just kept watching on repeat, being like, "What are you doing?" Um, because it started off with saying, um, "Chris Mins and Labor don't have a long-term plan," and then it cuts to Chris Mins saying. You know, we do. This is a this is a tired thing, and actually, here's our great plan. Um, but it doesn't matter what he says from that point because it's opened with Chris Mins and Labor don't have a long term plan, and that's the only thing anyone's going to remember. Like that's such a classic. Um, you don't use the opposition's frame, um, and that seems like such a one oh one thing um, that any campaigner could point out. Um, so that was a bit disappointing to see. However, I think um, some of the more recent ads are really strong. Um, they're, you know, might not be as shiny. They're um, pretty sort of basic visually, but um, the way they tell the story um, in terms of um, the impact of privatisation um, and Sydney Water being um, being sold off, um, and then also talking about. Um, public sector wage caps um, for nurses, teachers, paramedics, and what, what that actually means for people. So what that means for their children's education, what that means for their healthcare, um, and saying more that you will um, pay more with Perite. I think that really works. It connects, you know, what can be a bit of a, you know, a hard issue. And I come from a public sector union, it's hard to talk about wage caps and what that means, um, but connects that with people's actual lived experience of services and with the cost of living crisis. Um, and works in Labor's frame. People do believe that Labor is better on education and health. Um, so it's talking about the economy, but it's doing it in a way that Labor comes from a really strong position on, and it's holding the Liberals accountable for their history. Um, and I think, again, the worm has turned on privatisation. It's so great to see 
um, Labor going so strongly against privatisation. Um, and I think Sydney Water is going to be the gift that keeps on giving because that is so tangible. And again, you'll pay with Perite. So it, it's a hard space to be in where cost of living is the number one issue. It's what's preoccupying people. Um, the Liberals kind of myths about Labor being bad economic managers um, is very powerful with people, um, but actually holding the Liberals accountable to what they have done in office um, and what that means for people's back pocket, I think is some um, uh, strong positioning and those ads tell that story um, quite clearly. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds. Emails that drive donations and events that will energise the community online and offline. And text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. The ad, uh, sticking with you, Rosie, um, one of the negatives from the Labor campaign uh, where they were covering across a number of areas where the decisions by the Perrottet government are going to directly impact you and the creative in which the teacher disappears from the classroom, the nurse disappears from the ward. I can't remember who else. There's a whole bunch of people. And I, and I, I, what I appreciated about that and even as an outsider, times I've been up in Sydney, people have been talking about, particularly within the union movement, we're losing our best people to Queensland and to Victoria um, because better paying jobs, there's more job security down there uh, that, that, and just the work experience is greater because they're not feeling like they're under the pump as the experience is, is in, uh, in Sydney. So seeing these critical essential workers disappear in front of your eyes on the ad, I thought was an interesting creative because I think it's going to reinforce the view that people already have about what's going on, right? I thought that was beautifully done. I think it is it is hard to land that message and land it clearly and that was really evocative. It was really clear um, and, and really obvious, the message for that and really easy for people to relate it to the difficulties they're having um, with, with the systems that we have in terms of education, healthcare. And one of the other challenges with these ads, and I think this is the hardest part for anyone who's in this sort of business, this campaign creative business, is is that the attention span for folks has been now reduced down to ten seconds. You know, like in order to get an unskippable ad on YouTube, it has to be like ten seconds or six seconds. You know, you've got to kind of give kudos to uh, some of these creative types that can boil down a campaign message into six seconds. If you had said that to a campaign person, uh, which would have been a bloke in the nineteen fifties. You know, they'll go, that's impossible. No, 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 I need, I need a truck. Uh, I need a megaphone. I don't have four hours. I don't just need to drive around this way constantly. Like, and to distill it into six seconds is not an easy task, but, you know, certainly from the creative I've seen from Labor anyway, in the terms of negative society, they're starting, starting to get there. Um, Michael, the Tories, let's talk about their ads. Reflections, tell me, what do you think? Uh, um, I mean, I think they've, they're pretty basic. Um, uh, I, I think they've become stock reasonably stock standard against um uh, in their negative um and but from a positive point of view i think they're reflecting what we've all been saying which is just that perite is their asset they're focusing on perite um it's interesting I, I i kind of slightly have a different take uh on if i can jump back to that third paper ad because funny watch uh hearing you say it rosie because i do agree that yeah that's not the way you would ever be taught to to do these things but i wonder whether 
um, knowing this onslaught of ads about Labor not having a plan, Labor being a risk, right? This is they're trying to make Labor a risk. Whether devoting some time early in the campaign to just kind of saying, actually, let's try and undercut that message a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I've, that's not my area of expertise, so I'll defer to you guys. But, I, like, I really do think... Um, I know I thought it was interesting um, and whereas all the other ads I've seen have been very basic and I thought it was more of a kind of it took a bit of a risk and uh, I hope you know let's see see if it pays off but I think that um, certainly I bear it in mind when I now see the liberal ads I go oh yeah but I just saw another ad saying he does have a plan and he listed four things and and um, and I think that that's interesting to see whether whether people take that with a grain of salt. When I did, so, and I know exactly what uh, Rosie's talking about. And for the folks at home, um, what happened at the start of the ad is, I think uh, he's looking at an iPad or he's looking at a Kindle or something, and there's it's a there's a screen grab on there which is a negative message about Chris or Labor, and he looks. It's back, actually a copy of the Liberal campaign creative, right? So it's a literally a. It is the beginning of. It looks as though you're starting the ad with the Liberal ad, and then it switches up. Yeah, and he sort of rubs it out, and then it pans to Chris, and he says something like, "You know, we're not we're not going to be doing that." Um, the same technique was used in the twenty fourteen Vic campaign when uh, Daniel was running for the first time, uh, but he screwed it up, or it was an iPad, and he threw it away, or something. It was a similar kind of technique, and I thought it was odd when I first saw it back in twenty fourteen. So when I saw it reappear in this ad, I was like, "Oh, here we go, just keep on you know troping out some of the old uh, favorites." Um, we come up with some new ideas. Hence, why I like the one about the the teachers disappearing. I like that. You know, that was you know that was some creative there that I liked. What about um, Ivan? Has anyone seen any negatives by the conservatives on Labor? I've looked everywhere for those creatives and I couldn't find any. Can you help me out there? Um, but sorry, Rosie. If I, I'll, I'll happily jump in on, uh, but uh, the, I have seen a few things, uh, but they're focused on on. Labor doesn't have a plan, and and um, and that Chris is is a risk, and so it's the standard black and yellow, um, kind kind of thing. I don't think we've seen too much. Um, I think there's a view. Uh, too, I don't think we've seen too much on on Chris, surprisingly, and I suspect that there might be a view that um, that but if people don't know Chris, which is what the conservatives are saying is the case, then we don't want to kind of promote him or advertise him. And, and I just think that that's the kind of tricky thing that was insightful when it was mentioned in the West Wing two decades ago. <laughs> that's so now. Mm. Yeah, I think that's an, an interesting point, Michael. And um, look, I, I think probably they don't want to promote him. I think, you know, once people know who Chris is, it's a pretty positive image and positive impression. Um, I know I had someone I know who's uh, much less politically engaged call me up and say, Kyle and Jackie O love Chris Minns. I think you're going to win the election. <laughs> um, but, um, I, I, think, um, I think they're probably on to something with that. But I, I did find it interesting as well in, in the um, sort of more recent uh, Labor ads. They're talking about you'll pay more with Perite. They're talking Perite, Perite, Perite. They're not saying Liberals. And I haven't been privy to any of the, the focus groups or research, but obviously um, they um, are doing that for a reason. Did we talk about that last week? I do think that's interesting, 
um, both, you know, the Liberals perceive him, Perrottet, as their strength because to your, your point, Rosie, the Liberal positive ad doesn't mention the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party logo is on right at the end when they go to the just before the written authorised by yada yada, um, but that's it. So they're not talking about Liberal Party because obviously their brand is in the toilet, but they are talking about Perrottet, yet the contrast is Labor is talking about Perrottet as well. Now we saw the risk, hate to talk about Victoria again, but we saw the risk that the Liberals did that with Daniel Andrews and it backfired drastically. And I certainly hope that isn't the case here in you know, New South Wales. But I, I wonder how this is going to play out, right? Hmm. Well, if, if, if um, Perrottet is what's holding up the vote for the Conservatives, then it would make sense that you need to dampen that enthusiasm for Perrottet. It, it, um, whereas sort of reiterating that you don't like or that the Liberal brand is not as strong as it was maybe is kind of sort of less, you know, maybe they're trying to go for the top. I, I don't know whether it'll work and I'm not sure of uh, the polling there too, I think, but um, but I imagine that's what's behind it. Um, one thing I, I just realised when, when uh, you mentioned about the negative um, ad is that there's actually been a, one ad that's been repeated twice now in two different forms. So when they used to start with the Labor doesn't have a plan and uh, ad, it was a scratchy that they scratched off in the beginning of the ad. And that was presumably trying to link people's minds to the pokies debate um, on Heritage cracking down on pokies. Interestingly, the more recent iterations of the exact same ad, exact same ad, uh, I, I think it's wiping away, or but they don't use the scratchy motif anymore. It's the exact same ad, um, but it's sort of it, it, they've dropped that. And so I wonder what is drive. Someone made a decision that that ad was not working for that reason, or that that part of the ad wasn't working, and they've made a change. And so I, I don't know what's behind it, but I think it's an interesting sh- uh, switch up. It's that detail. That's why I got you two on this show. No one else picked that up. Uh, this will be on the front page of the Telegraph tomorrow. Let's turn to polling because we didn't get a chance to talk about polling last week as well. Um, and for the folks at home, I'll sort of just give you a very kind of quick snapshot of the recent published polls. Uh, to my knowledge, anyway, it's the 15th of March and I've not been aware of any other published polls to come out in March. The last one was on the 24th to 28th of February, which is from Roy Morgan that had the Labor primary around 35 and the Liberal primary, Liberal National Party around 32 and a half. That puts Labor on a 52.5% 2PP. Um, the one before that was Resolve that had Labor at 38, uh, uh, Coalition 32, uh, Freshwater, which was a day before. So all of these are actually within four days of each other. Uh, Freshwater had Labor on 39, Labor on, uh, Libs on 37, and Newspoll 36 uh, for Labor, 37 for the Conservatives. Um, I know we talked about uh, polling before, um, but before we get into sort of what we're making of these polls, I think it's important that we talk about the voting system in New South Wales because it is unlike any other system. Well, I don't regard Hair Clark as a system. That's insane. But um, outside of federal or other state elections, we had this optional preferential voting. Um, Rosie, just for the uninitiated, can you give us a bit of an overview of what it's like when you walk into a ballot paper and they hand you a ballot paper and how it works? 
Yeah, sure. And um, it's not as confusing as Hair Clark, but um, which I would not like to talk about. It does my head in. Um, but optional, um, preferential. And again, like it's our democracy, it's so confusing that there are different systems for voting um, at different levels of government and in different parts of Australia. Like for voters, it is very, very confusing. Um, and I know that, you know, it then ends up with some um, people getting confused in the federal election and voting informally, that type of thing. Um, but essentially with optional preferential, um, you can um, number as many as you like. Um, so um, a lot of people will just vote one and then the vote will exhaust or we'll just vote for a few different parties or, or candidates in there um, and then the vote will exhaust. Um, so this does end up to say, you know, people voting for minor parties um, and then say half of those votes were just totally exhaust rather than then landing um, up in a, in a major party's um, pile depending on how they preferenced. Um, so it is, it is a real game changer. Um, it has really different impacts um, in different seats and, and in different races. Um, and um, I think, you know, how that has impacted over time, how it will impact at this election is up for um, debate. But it is more likely that a Greens voter will then go and preference Labor, regardless of what the rules are, um, than a One Nation voter will then go and preference the Tories and not just vote one. Um, but Michael, you can probably jump in. Like we see all sorts of weird examples with these things. And I know I've been scrutineering um, in, in voting booths and you're seeing, you know, people voting for the shooters and then if their preferences aren't exhausting, it's kind of going 50-50 into the Labor pile and the Liberal pile. So with some of these minor parties, um, it's not what you'd think it would be. Um, and I think particularly with the One Nation factor this election, um, we are seeing a lot of different variables around the place. Michael, do you want to pick up on that? You see people um, chip in on, on election day. Some parties will put up signs saying just vote one that look like they're put up by the Electoral Commission. They're not allowed to copy it completely, but it'll be, you know, that's a strategy to stop people uh, preferencing if they think a... Um, you know, if they think they're going to have a higher primary vote, let's say it's a Liberal Labor contest, if, you know, Liberals think Labor's going to have a higher primary vote, they might, or, or if they think they'll have a higher primary vote but Labor will get along the line, they might put a ju just vote one. Um, they might even put a just vote one in a Greens colour to kind of uh, get people there. Um, but, no, I think, I think Rosie said it right. I, the only thing I'd say is about, what, uh, 20 to 30%, I think, of Greens votes don't flow, like exhaust. Um, which doesn't maybe sound like too much, but in a close contest, that can be a big, a big change. Um, and it breaks, just from a perspective of being a bit of a democracy nerd, it breaks my heart seeing any vote exhaust. Like it's really, it's really hard to see all these votes that then go nowhere. Um, and there's other weird variables too, like the kind of IMOP, the kind of anti-vaxxer crowd, like that's a mixture of kind of freedom party, um, conservative types and um, more kind of woo-woo Greens voters who are anti-vaxxers and like where, where do those preferences flow? There's all sorts of weird variations. In a contest, because uh, one of the things I, when I, when I first when I first started examining the, uh, the, 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 the published polls and looking at the Labor primary, now normally in a traditional federal election you kind of think if labor's got a four in front of it and it's primary you, th you think okay this is good i'm feeling reasonably confident about our the likelihood of us holding either that seat or if it's a, the national figure 
Um, but then here in New South Wales, there is an optionality to the way that you can vote. So it's almost like a, there's a, there is, you need to turn someone out. They're going to come to the ballot box, but you need to turn them out to complete their ballot paper or at least attribute a preference to you. So there is some, you know, there is a, there is a kind of an, a US element to the work that you're doing. So then for when you're polling, like in the United States, when they're polling people, polling registered voters that are likely to vote, I'm wondering about the polling that's going on here in New South Wales. And you see like, say, for example, that Roy Morgan poll that's got Labor at 33 uh, primary and then they've got the two-party preferred at 52, which is a great number, right? That's that's election, that's that's government for you there. Are they polling people and asking them, but are you also like, because the other in that poll was 14.5%. Are they asking the others, are you also likely to complete your ballot paper to at least attribute a preference to one of the two major parties. Like, I don't know what's going on there. So then how do we extrapolate from the research? These numbers that we're getting, I don't know who wants to take that one, but it's been racking my brain for the last week. Not me. I don't want to take it either. (laughs) Well, I I think, to be honest, I think you've just identified, um, Stephen, um, exactly why it's a nightmare and why the polls only tell part of the story and you really don't know what's going to happen until the counts happens, um, which makes me quite nervous. And if we start to then dig down into specific seats, do we feel comfortable if, if we see a lot of micro parties that would we, we would say that were traditionally on the the right-hand side of the political spectrum, Rosie, like you talked about a lot of these micro-parties from anti-vaxxer parties to One Nation to a whole bunch of things that have popped up probably in the Freedom Parties over the last two two years. If we see them on the ballot paper, do we sort of go, hmm, okay, this is not bad for us because maybe a lot of these votes that would normally be primary votes of the Party may go to, the, may go to these guys and not preference back? Well, it's hard to predict and there's not a science to it, but an optimistic read would be that a bunch of people that might vote Liberal um, or National otherwise would vote there and then not preference and then that Conservative vote gets wasted. Uh, it's it's more complex than that. Um, but, Michael, any views? Well, I, I think to the um, sort of it's one of those things where probably if you're ahead, you want there to be fewer minor parties. And if you're behind, then minor parties might be your path to victory. Um, and the one of the seats that you know, uh, I don't know if they've registered this time, um, but the the sustainability or the sustainable party, which sounds very green and nice and environmental, but it's an anti-immigrant party, and they, you know, they will in this case um, they might take and they've been known to take votes that would otherwise go to the Greens or Labor and and shift them elsewhere or, or um, it also means that there's um, you, you, yeah, you have different dynamics in each seat. So it does mean that you have to probably look at it on a seat by seat basis, um, especially when there's a really tight margins in some of these. Um, but yeah, I think the, I, I don't know that it necessarily overall favors one party or another. I think it's a seat by seat basis. Do we have, yeah, we've got time. I want, we haven't spoken about the Teals much over the last two episodes. Rosie, I want to get your thoughts on the Teals uh, in this campaign. Obviously, you know, they made big gains at the federal election, then they kind of didn't really make any impact in the Victorian election. And I, I think there were clear reasons for that. One, no Scott Morrison. Two, no money. Um, what, are, what are your expectations from, from the, the Teals campaign here in the, the New South Wales state election? Yeah, look, I, I think um, it is very different 
federal and the no Scott Morrison and no money um, elements are very real in New South Wales. Like it is very restrictive in terms of what people can spend in these campaigns. So, um, you know, the teal success nationally was down to numerous factors and deep pockets were one of them, but it was a significant one. Um, it's a very different playing field. Um, and I also think that the New South Wales Liberals have done a better job of preempting this threat and actually um, not being visibly climate change deniers who won't do anything in that space. I think there's sort of a range of policy areas um, where they are seen to be a bit more moderate, a bit more reasonable, um, and they don't have a Scott Morrison type figure to co convalesce people around. I also think that there is not the kind of campaigning infrastructure or momentum, like the Teal's picture is a bit more patchy and loosely fit together. There's a range of independents running. They wouldn't all fit under the Teal banner. I think it'll be really interesting to see where they land, um, but it's not the same machine and it's not the same set of circumstances and where they will do well um, will also just be, as it always is, but if they're a person of note, locally with a large profile who can rally supporters and a good team around them, um, then they have the potential to do well. And, you know, places like Manly will be interesting ones to watch. Um, but um, there's the sexiness of the Teal brand that I think people very much enjoyed the narrative of from the federal election, um, but it, it's not the same second of circumstances. Michael, can we turn to the media, the media watch element of today's episode? Uh, and I do believe you've got a public apology to our listeners after some of the things last week about the uh, state. Yes, I, I uh, in in last week I thought that the media was doing a pretty good job, and in particular, I shouted out the Telegraph not having done its usual kind of. Uh, sort of, uh, I, I thought it had done a couple of hatchet jobs on both sides and wasn't being too too biased. The day that came out, uh, I believe it was that day that um, the Telegraph splashed on No One Knows Who Chris Smith is after they did a sample of 30 own electorate, um, which uh, I think we looked at uh, trying to work out the standard error of that, which was, worked out to be about 100% uh, standard error for a sample size that um, that small. Well, they basically um, uh, they, they they basically went and asked their entire readership what they think about Chris Minns, all thirty of them. They came back with you know their own opinions. That's yeah. what we saw here. Right? <laughs> um, I think there's plenty of Labor campaigners who wish that um, the Telegraph only had thirty readers. Um, but uh, the the yeah, I mean they they interviewed thirty people at the train station, as I believe what they did. But that was front page. That was front page uh, story, right? Like that was a big. Um, since then, we have had a couple, you know, I, I, there was a, the Liberal Party put out some analysis of a Labor policy on tolls um, that they said was going to blow out the budget by a lot. Sort of, you know, Liberal Party saying Labor policy is not costed correctly is not really a big thing, but this was a big thing. Um, some Liberal volunteers um, uh, have accused the Labor candidate for... for um, for Parramatta, who is actually a very, uh, this was in the papers today, uh, she's, she's, this is a very tight seat, so this is really matters what happens in Parramatta. Um, and they, they've said that um, she said something racist to them. Um, what she said, what they're saying she said was uh, that um, they lock up their women, um, which they've said as I think there, it was an, uh, an Indian migrant and a Chinese migrant saying that that was a race racially motivated 
um, obviously denied. But, you know, again, Liberal Party volunteers say Labor Party candidate said something bad mm. is kind of not really, um, you know, ha- hasn't, isn't big, but it's it's been big the last few days. So, I mean, it kind of shows that we're getting there. Um, I think they're probably, Labor probably can be thankful that they had the good run they did for so long. Um, but, yeah, it's starting to get a bit tighter and a bit... Um, so anyway, apologies to the listeners is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I'm trying to justify myself, but really, it was. I gave them kudos last week. They were listening and they said, you know what, Michael thinks they're not being hard enough, so we're going to be harder. And I assume that's what happened on Friday. It's like the commentator's curse for uh, political podcasts. Uh, Rosie, what's your take on the media so far over the course of the campaign? Um, well, look, I think I think Michael's right. Like, I, I think as we head into this pointy end, um, things get a bit dirtier um, from all sides. Um, and I think the, the kind of negative reporting we've seen angled at Labor from, um, from media has been, like, pretty, you know, a 30-person survey um, is, uh, doesn't exactly stack up. Um, but there's also just been all of the kind of little dirt hits that people have clearly been sitting on for months and months, if not years, um, that they're then putting out there to try and distract parties and, and candidates as, as we go, you know, bringing up old um, serious, but like, you know, things that have been reported on previously, like branch sucking um, or... Um, other issues um, in relation to grants, like just trying to get things with a stench around them um, and bring them out um, in the final couple of weeks. Um, But I haven't seen anything with real impact, I think. I think it's more of a kind of mudslinging, distract candidates in these seats, um, try and have everyone chasing their tails as we reach the pointy end. So we'll see um, if anything big comes out. Um, I think actually what Labor has with um, the evidence of the Liberals privatising Sydney Water is the big tangible thing I've mm. seen. And I guess that will be a test for the media as well about how fair they are about actually reporting on substantial policy issues in this campaign if they were to run heavily on Sydney Water. Because I, I think you're right, they've been saying for you know 12 months, the government, uh, we're not privatising it and now we've got evidence that that is not the case. In fact, as you said before, Michael, it's already happening. Um, I, you know, you've got to look at the the you know, the two main papers or the, or the, or the, or the TVs, um, you know, are you going to hold a spotlight to the government on this particular issue? Because voters really need to know about this before they're going to start voting on Saturday, right? What was interesting also was that that story was broken by 2GB um, and Channel 9. So it was, I think, Chris O'Keefe on 2GB Drive yesterday um, broke that story. And so... Um, it's interesting again what watching it how we how we um you know who who that the fact that we have an audience that it would be traditionally again considered not necessarily pro labor but really going hard on a privatization message um final reflections before we uh we wrap up for the day uh starting with uh, you rosie what are your expectations in this sort of uh final week i know we're all going to catch up next week again but i just want to get a sense of from the campaigns going into the final week of the campaign? Um, I think that, I mean, I feel incredibly anxious going into the final week of the campaign, but people are about to start casting their votes in a matter of days. So 
a lot of what will happen has happened um, and um, uh, the final week will be um, incredibly hectic. I think as Michael's identified, seeing where the leader goes will tell us a bit about what the internal ALP campaign is thinking and where they're, they're setting their hopes and dreams on. Um, and fingers crossed for no major faux pas or, or stuff ups. Um, and um, ability to land some of these really important stories like the Sydney water story um, in a way that has um, people listening as they go and cast their vote. Michael? Um, I, I think this is, it was almost exactly now in 2019 when things started to go awry for the Labor campaign and it really fell apart in the last 10 days. Um, and so to me, I'm, I'm watching. That's what I'm watching. I'm watching whether whether it's now everyone can hold it together, or whether there's something that someone's been holding on. Um, you know, we've shown in 2019, um, the Liberal campaign showed incredible patience to hold certain leaks out until literally Monday or Tuesday of before election day. And so I think that that's the. Um, not that I'm saying I think everyone's got something to hide, but I just that's what that's what has me. Um, that's what I'm watching for between now and the next episode. Well, as uh, both you said, we are coming down to the wire in this critical campaign. Uh, voting starts on Saturday. So basically it's election week. It's not election day. Uh, and the biggest uh, polling booth actually is pre-poll. So if you live in New South Wales and you want to elect uh, another Labor government in uh, the great state of New South Wales, then you need to sign up as a volunteer. Go to www.newsouthwales.org.au. Uh, there's a volunteer page there where you can sign up for phone banks and uh, door knocks. Just we don't need strategy, Steve's anymore. We don't need policy people anymore. We just need people to make have conversations, value based conversations with persuadable or uh, undecided voters, either on the phones or their doors. So if you've got some free time, go down there, sign up for a for a shift, uh, and make some calls. Uh, or knock on some doors, you're going to get some, get some training and you're going to meet really cool people as well. One of the funnest things about on campaigns is you get to meet a whole bunch of people that are from different walks of life, but you share the same values. And that is you believe in solidarity and you believe in labour. Uh, and if you're outside of New South Wales and you want to support the campaign, then obviously um, donate some money, go to that same uh, website I mentioned before. We'll put those links in the bio uh, as well. Uh, before we wrap up, also just want to say uh, today is uh, Wednesday, Friday is St. Patrick's Day to all of you out there in the Irish diaspora. Uh, we want to wish you all a happy St. Patrick's Day. Rosie with a surname like Ryan, I'm assuming you also are a member of the Irish diaspora. Michael Buckland, Michael Buckland though, that sounds like uh, you might have been on the other side of uh, the relationship that we once had. Yeah, yeah. Buckland's Welsh. Well, yeah. you're a Celt. That's great. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Welcome to the family. You can get pissed with us as well. Uh, so, yeah, I want to say happy, uh, happy St. Pat's Day to everyone out there and also to our colleagues in the Irish Labor Party, to uh, Billy and the team out in, uh, in Dublin. We wish you the best of uh, the day on, uh, on Friday. Uh, Rosie, Michael, great to see you. Loved doing this podcast with you today and I look forward to talking to you both next week for our final episode before uh, Election Day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers.
Morris Blackburn lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Social Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.